0: Hi, this is Eric Eckers, humor writer, book author, general nuisance, and you're listening to Behind the Pros.
1: Well, hello, my fellow Behind the Prosers. It feels like masterpiece theater in here to me because I'm sitting in front of the fireplace and we're recording this intro and I haven't even yet had a glass of wine. Welcome back to another episode. I have a special treat for you today. Eric Deckers, who's a humor writer, talked to me in August. Eric, I thank you for your patience. Here is this episode that you've been waiting for, that I've been waiting for. But before we get to it, I would like to update you on my chunks of 20. I am at a new chunk of 20. I told you I would finish and because I told you, I did finish it. And my response rate for this last chunk is exactly 20%. Um, as far as people who accepted my stuff, um, the previous chunk, uh, had, I think about four acceptances. So it's a little higher on that one. Um, so I'm one into my new chunk. I have 19 to go. And, uh, yeah so that's I think you know going well I started off slow in September but I'm picking back up again overall through the years since about 2012 my response rate is about 15 percent uh which means that I I get a yes 15 percent of the time so that's the cat ignore her um and what else I hope that you're doing well with your writing this week. I'm still waiting for your check-ins, but people on Twitter are shouting out what they are doing um, and make sure that you're following me following me at behind the pros on Twitter. I've been trying to retweet some things that you might be interested in submitting to and look for that as well. Make sure you're on the email list and please recommend me on um, iTunes and review the show. Now, without further ado, we're going to bring to you the interview with Eric Deckers.
2: So today, I have with me Eric Deckers. He's the president of Pro Blog Service, um, which is a content marketing agency. has clients throughout the United States. He's also the co-author of several books on uh, social media and branding, and we'll talk about that. He's been blogging since 1997. And he has been um, a newspaper columnist, a humor columnist for 20 years. And we'll talk about a lot of his work today. And one of the other things that I'm particularly excited about is he is one of the four writers in residence at the Jack Kerouac House in Orlando for Spring to 2016. Welcome to Behind the Pros, Eric.
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: So, I mean, there's so many places where we could begin (laughs) in your writing career. But let's start with the nuts and bolts of the writing, the process. Um, What's your writing process like on a regular basis? Do you have a schedule? Are you sort of just a, not would say free form, but do you do a follow-up schedule? I'm sure you might have to with a weekly newspaper column.
0: Well, When it comes to things like my column, uh, I'm always scheduling something for that slot. Like uh, 8 o'clock Thursday night, uh, the deadline is midnight. So 8 o'clock Thursday night, I don't do anything else but write my column. So, you know, no evenings out with the family, no TV shows, nothing. And it's been that way for 20 years. But everything else, uh, I'm not super organized. And so I just keep everything on a giant to-do list, whether it's client work or whether it's uh, a book project I might be working on or even just, you know, extra writing that I want to do. And as long as I'm getting the things done, I fit everything in where I I can and where I kind of, you know, I have meetings or I have lunch appointments and everything else fits around that.
2: So it's terribly
0: disorganized.
2: Well, it's it sounds organized though in a way, you know, you have a list. Um, but that, does it? I mean, does it even really need to be organized, quote
0: unquote? You know? Right. As long as my clients are happy, that's what matters most. And so, as long as that work's getting done, then I can do whatever I want in the other time. So there will be weeks that are slow uh, for client work because I've I've worked ahead, and so I get to do more of the uh, of the fun writing. And there are other times where client work is so bad and so heavy that I can't get any personal writing done.
2: And would you consider the newspaper column part of the fun writing?
0: Yes. Yes, I would, mostly because uh, I don't get paid for it, so that's what makes it fun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You have to get something out of it. (laughs) Yes. I got something out of it. The column is called The Laughing Dog, correct? Yes. Um, and I've read several of them. And we'll talk about them. But I want you to take us to Thursday night. Um, and I know some of the columns that I've read, the content varies um, from conversations with uh, your friend who reappears throughout the series, the Curmudgeon, and um, some stuff that you've done when you were writing for uh, the Indiana Tourism uh, Department, I'm probably saying the name wrong. Um, but it's just daily kind of observations about life. And so take us to a Thursday night at eight PM. Have you been mulling your ideas over all week long? What happens when you sit down?
0: Uh well and if I'm lucky, I have been mulling. If I'm super lucky, I've actually sketched out some notes. The the uh uh, in the days leading up to that. But I'll start looking at websites like FARC.com, F-A-R-K, um, and seeing if there are any fun news stories on there. It's a it's a news aggregator for just mostly to make jokes about the headlines, but sometimes they're just weird and unusual stories. And so I'll go through sources like that, or I'll go through AP's weird news or uh, UPI's weird news section and see if there's anything that I can make fun of. And so I've been mulling it over for a few days, and for me, that's part of the writing process—not just making words with my fingers at the keyboard. It's actually, you know, driving or, you know, in the shower or something where I'm processing ideas and coming up with language. And so Thursday at eight o'clock, I sit down and I start writing, and I can, uh, depending on how how distracted I am or how easily everything comes. Uh, I can do a first draft anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. (laughs) Then I have to go away for an hour, come back and rewrite, go away for another hour, come back and polish. And by 12 or 1230, uh, I'm sending it off to my editors and and, uh, scheduling it on my blog. So let's
2: talk about that go away for an hour part. Is that obviously self-imposed? But why do you do
0: that? Um, if I if I finish the draft and then I go back and edit and revise right then, uh, I've, I'm too close to the piece and I can't find errors as easily. I can't find clunky language. Everything sounds right, and so even if I even if I make two more passes, one right after the other it still comes across as a first draft, which I'm not a great first draft writer. But I find that if I can uh, sit on a piece, the longer the better, the the, uh, more errors and, and problems I can catch and fix. Now, like I said earlier, if I'm really on the ball, I will have some notes sketched out. I've done an entire first draft a couple of days before, and then on column night it's just a matter of doing that revision, and the piece comes out so much better. Uh, than, then you know, trying to cram it all in within a couple of hours. And so I try to do that when I can, but I just, I never have the time.
2: It's good to hear you say that hour, it thinks but I think that's something that I've always, um, I, I hear, you know, everyone, you know, put a piece away, go back to it later. But then when you're on a deadline, how do you build that in? And it sounds like you have a good, method for that on, um, you know, within a small amount of time, you still find a way to put it away and come back.
0: Right. And then I have to do something else <clears throat> that really distracts me from it. And so then I will watch TV or I'll read or I'll, you know, watch a couple of episodes of Archer on Netflix or, you know, something that completely takes my mind off of the piece so that when I come back to it, it's, it's almost like I forced the rest, um, you know, forced the the break and force my mind to really rest on it, not just go away from it, but I'm still thinking about it because I went for a walk and I'm mulling it over.
2: Mm. So with that said, do you prefer drafting or revising, getting it down
0: Uh, first? I I think I like that first draft process, coming up with the ideas, so, you know, I get to surprise myself sometimes because all my fingers will go faster than my brain and, and sometimes what comes out makes me laugh. And that's what I keep in.
2: Now, that actually brings me to my next question. As a humor writer, um, what is your editing process like um, in terms of for content and for things that you think are funny?
0: Well, I have an odd sense of humor. So... I don't know that my humor always resonates with other people, but if it makes me laugh, it automatically stays in. That's almost a given. <clears throat> but I also know that because most of my readers uh, are at weekly newspapers in small towns, their their sensibilities and their senses of humor are going to be very different from mine, um, You know, 12-year-old boy's sense of humor. So I can't make a lot of the jokes that I would make. Otherwise, so I have to keep that in mind as I'm writing. But then if it, if I can still make myself laugh being, you know, being a little bit naughty, uh, then I'll do that. But then if it's a piece that I'm writing for somewhere else, uh, I can be completely inappropriate if, you know, if the work calls for it. But I couldn't do that for the newspapers.
2: And how did you become a newspaper columnist?
0: um i met the editor of the Wakarusa tribune which is a small town uh and a small town newspaper in northern indiana and i'd had the idea for writing a newspaper column after trying to write a complaint letter to fresh air with terry gross but i kept making jokes in it and uh because i didn't want him to be mad at me for having a complaint so would try to lighten the mood or whatever I was trying to say and would make a joke. And I I did so many of those that when it was done, I thought, oh, that was fun. I should do that again. And so I wrote a couple more essays, and I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll be an essayist because there's money in that. <laughs> and then I just happened to meet this newspaper columnist um, like a month after I started that, and I asked him, are you taking any uh, columns? And he he asked me, are you a Democrat? And I said, "Well, yeah, we met at the county Democrats meeting. <laughs> You're a newspaper columnist, and uh, that's how I became a newspaper columnist. And and uh, he's still my flagship paper, and uh, and you know, for over 20 years since uh, this past April, uh, every Friday, you know, Friday at midnight, Thursday at midnight, he gets my column, <clears throat> and so do nine other papers in the uh, in the state."
2: Wow. So. Uh- Would that be considered a syndicated column now since it's in multiple papers?
0: It it would be. It's a self-syndicated as opposed to having somebody like King's Features Syndicate uh, handle that for me.
2: So you obviously have the editor at your paper, flagship paper. What's the name of that paper?
0: The Wakarusa Tribune.
2: And is that in Indiana? Yes. Um, So you have that editor that you've been working with, but outside of him or editors you might be officially working with on a project, do you have a personal e board, a personal editorial for board?
0: Uh I don't. I have I have a couple of people that occasionally I will send something to. Uh sometimes I'll have my wife read something, uh, more when I want either her approval because she's in the piece and I want to make sure that she thinks she's coming across well or Uh, sometimes I'll just have her read something to see if it's, it's on the right track because I'll struggle with something and it doesn't, the jokes don't seem to be coming very well. Um, and I'm, I'm not enjoying writing the piece, but I'll have her read it and she'll say, Oh yeah, it's fine. What I find then too, is those pieces that I struggle with and I don't like the humor. People love those. The ones that make me laugh. No one, I don't hear anything. It's like crickets. So, but other than that, I have no editorial board whatsoever, mm. but I've listened to your podcast before, and every time I do it, I keep thinking, I should do that i should I should find people <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, I'm always um I like it when I hear um people say that they it, that oh you know I'll, I'll send something to bounce something off from somebody. Um, and I listen also to Sherman Alexi, and Jess Wilkes' podcast, and, and, you know, Sherman's very big on he doesn't, you know, get opinions from people unless, like, they'll just send something, maybe suggest a show it's in, like you said, but not necessarily for feedback. Not that feedback is bad, but uh, do you think there's a fine line between, as an as an artist or, you know, getting feedback on your your work? Just mm-hmm. positive and, and that's not positive.
0: And one of the issues that I I have trouble with, is especially when it comes to humor writing, is I don't know that many humor writers. Uh, there are a few. And there just aren't many of us. But, but the ones that I do know, they're also as busy as I am and don't really have the time. Like a, a good friend of mine is the weekend features reporter for our local CBS affiliate here in Indy. And, uh, and and we trade ideas back and forth, and we meet every couple of months just to talk about writing in general. But <clears throat> I know he has about as much free time as I do, and to read somebody else's work, it's just not going to get done in a timely manner. Yeah. So so my, <clears throat> my requirements for finding somebody who could read for me is somebody who's a humor writer who's been doing it for a while you know almost somebody who can play that mentor uh advisor role and i'm old enough that they're harder to find
2: and did you do any writing programs formally as to say mentor advisor role
0: um i don't i've been in a couple where i've i've been the mentor mm-hmm. but uh i haven't done as many as a participant
2: so I'm looking at your your books here. You're the co-author of four books on branding and social media, and we will have the link to that on the Behind the Pro show page. Um, and the three of them are on a publishing imprint of Pearson. And I wonder what is the best, if you looking back on the process of working with another author, what do you think the best thing about that process is?
0: Well, the thing that I've I've liked about having a co-author in all of these books is my workload was cut in half. Uh, And and because we were working on such a tight deadline, that was very important. You know, when you're writing a book for Q, uh, Q Q-U-E, that's the BizTech line of Pearson, uh, they give you four months. And so when you're writing a book that's 16 chapters, that's a chapter a week which can be difficult if you're not a fast writer. And, and, you know, my co-authors and I were lucky in the sense that um, we knew the subject very, very well. And a lot of times we're just writing from memory and from knowledge without having to do a ton of research. But I've known people who tackle a subject and, and, you know, the writing takes them a couple weeks just to do a single chapter because they have to do so much research and reading and testing and trying out. And so having that co-author there really does make a big difference in in the quality of the work because we can spend more time reading and revising each other's work, but also uh, we get to spend more time developing those ideas. If somebody was going to come to me and say, Hey, I'm going to write for Pearson. What do you recommend I do? I tell them start now and build up a, a, a stockpile of chapters. So that when you actually start the process, you're not killing yourself off with a lot of late nights, mm-hmm. which on I've done bo- that. I, I've I've spent you know I'll be up until two o'clock in the morning uh, a lot of nights just you know almost falling asleep at my computer trying to get chapters done.
2: On the books that you sold to Cube, did you um, guys sell those? I guess then on proposals.
0: We did. Uh and this is where networking really helps and, and we talk about that in uh in branding yourself is the importance of networking. <clears throat> My co-author Kyle and I uh met our editor. Uh and Kyle knew a guy who worked for Catherine. He got us the interview with Catherine, so and, and she happened to be local here in Indianapolis. Their offices uh for their BizTech imprint are in Indy. And so we got to go in and meet with her and pitch her the book. And she said, Hey, that sounds great. Um, send me you, uh, the official proposal so I can run it past the editorial staff, but that's how we got in. And she even coached us on how the proposal should look and the things that we needed to say and talk about <clears throat> in order to get it past their editorial board. So that's where networking makes a big, big difference. I mean, you can, You can pitch books to publishers all day long, but solicited or unsolicited, if the editor doesn't know you and doesn't have a vested interest in you being successful at their place, it's harder to get in than if you even meet that person for 15 minutes and talk to them.
2: Um, I talked to um, one of my last guests. Well, the last person I interviewed, who I'll be airing her show next week, Gwen Hernandez. She's the author of Scrivener for Dummies. And we were talking about that process. And I think their turnaround was pretty quick as well. Um, and that's Wiley. And so we were also, you know, talking about being on, like, a major label like a Wiley or for the Four Dummies series or Pearson and how people often think, oh, well, wow, like, you've made it or you're making a lot of money now. And she revealed that her advance was in was four figures, I think, in the four-figure range. She didn't say what it was, but I asked her, you know, generally, what what could you expect? Would you be able to say within your books that you've done, your range is like four figures, five figures? I think people are often misguided or curious about that type of thing.
0: So a lot of, you're never going to get rich publishing a book unless your last name is Grisham or Patterson. Uh, and the the figures that we get in advances uh tend to be anywhere from from seventy five hundred to fifteen thousand and that's you know that's for two of us and I'm sure if I had written one of those books by myself, that might have been my advance as well but this is these advances not only do they serve as loans because then you have to pay them back through book sales but they are also. To be used for things like publishing, or I'm sorry, promoting and PR. And if you want to do a book tour, you're going to fund it with that. And if you need to go to a, uh, a site to be able to write about it, you're going to use it for that. So, like, if we had had to travel to Google for the book, that's what the advance was for. So, so a lot of people think you know, big giant advance, and you're going to live on that. And for those numbers and for what the publisher expects you to do with your own self-promotion, that's not really anything you can just live on. And so it's never much to begin with. And then after you you make up that advance in sales, what you get when it's done is definitely not enough to live on. So this is more of a labor of love and it becomes a calling card for like a speaking career.
2: I didn't realize that the advance that the writer also paid for their own you know uh paid for their travel and stuff out of that advance as well for their p r
0: right yeah they maybe some of the big fiction houses will do it, but if you're writing for a small press or if you're writing for uh one of these non fiction business uh publishing houses they are publishing thirty to forty books a month every month. And so they don't have the thousands of dollars to that to do that whirlwind uh book tour and press junket.
2: I think that looking at some of the things that you have done, um, if if anyone might be suited for self promotion or promoting themselves uh and, and selling their work, it seems to be that it would be you. Uh, you know, you've got your books on social media. Uh, you have, um, a content marketing agency. Um, and you also ended up writing at one point for visit Ireland. Um, the, their, wrote a travel blog for them.
0: No, visit w- Indiana.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, visit Indiana. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Why did I say Ireland? I
0: don't know. I don't know. That no. would be cool though. I should <laughs> give them a call.
2: Yeah. Let's speak it into existence. <laughs> Um, where do you think that comes from? Your ability to sort of uh, be this type of marketing octopus.
0: Well, a lot of it is just, you know, this is one of the things about professional writers, and and uh, I can't. Who's the guy who wrote the uh, the War of Art? Pressfield. Oh
2: yeah, yeah, Stephen Pressfield.
0: He he talked about for professional writers, there's no inspiration. You just sit down and do the work. You know, you don't wait for the right moment. You just do it. And so I've I've adopted that mindset that whatever needs to be written just gets written, and whatever needs to be promoted just gets promoted. And so, uh, so I may be promoting a client's blog for an hour and then look at my list and realize, oh, I need to write this blog post for Visit Indiana or I need to uh, you know, write my column, or I need to do something, I need to make phone calls, and I just get it done. And and so having done enough sales and marketing over the years, it's just, it's just that next thing that has to be done. And I, I sometimes worry that I'm not doing a good enough job because I'm not really thinking about and processing what am I doing, what's my goal with this phone call, what's my reason for writing this blog post. I just do it without necessarily an end goal in mind. Like this will one day lead to, you know, lead to a, uh, a paid travel writing stint with a travel magazine, or this will one day lead to a big publication and an award.
2: Well, let's talk about your writing a little bit more specifically. I've read several of your laughing stock columns and i when you said earlier about you focus on um cutting clunky words from your writing, and I think that that really comes across like in your style um it's it's very clean the content moves quickly but not in a uh rushed pace if 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 that makes any sense right like i can mm-hmm. i can i can read through it quickly I can follow it um but at the same time, you're also, um, and so one of the in one of the, in the series in your column you have this character Carl, the curmudgeon that I I've seen him in at least two of the columns. Does he come up? He comes up in more than that, I'm sure, right?
0: hmm Oh yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So he's, um, and uh, one he's of the things,
0: favorite recurring character.
2: One of the things I noticed that was interesting in, in terms of style of that one is it's constructed mostly in dialogue and um, it's always like a scene. Well, the couple that I've read have been a scene with you and Carl and he's talking about something or giving his views. And the one I'm talking about now is the Friday, July 24th post, Carl the curmudgeon says Pluto's a planet. And um, it touches on the idea that, you know, when Pluto was downgraded to not being a planet after for all these years, we all learned that it was a planet. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you, put his dialogue in quotes, and then yours is not. Um, and then you, you that seems to be the pattern. How did you arrive at that stylistic choice?
0: You're actually the first person to catch that, so well done. Um, <laughs> Carl the curmudgeon uh, was sort of inspired by a character uh, uh, named Slats Grovnik from Mike Royko, and, and Mike Royko was a you know famous Chicago newspaper columnist back in gosh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And uh, and when I used to read Mike Royko, he's, he made me want to be a newspaper columnist. And, uh, and so his Slats Grobnik character was this fictional character that <clears throat> they would have these discussions where Slats would say and rant about the things that made him mad uh, that were usually the controversial side of an issue. But it's the stuff Mike wanted to say, but he made Slats say it. And then Mike was sort of that voice of reason uh and saying, But you know, does that make sense? A lot of people seem to think the other way and, and slats would argue with Mike when really Mike's trying to tell all these people this is what you will you know, this is what you sound like or this is what you should be thinking. And so I thought I'm going to create my own version of Slats where I've got a, a character who I get to have those discussions with. And so, uh, as I started writing and developing the idea of Carl, I I needed a way to set what I said apart from him, but I didn't want to rely on I said all the time, and I didn't want just a bunch of dialogue. And so I thought, I'll drop my quote marks and make it part of my narrative, so so you're reading my narrative, you're reading the things that I did, and you're reading the things that I said, but it's a description, not a not a direct quote. You know, it's not inside the quote marks. And I I tried that a couple times just to see how it would go and to see what people's reactions would be, and nobody said anything. So I thought, well, I'm just going to keep doing this, and, and maybe one day somebody will pick up on that. And, and so you're the first
2: think it also gives the piece a little bit a feel of like um being ver- being specific in general at the same time and uh and I try to find a better way to articulate that um, it's almost as if at times I felt like I was having a conversation with Carl mm-hmm. because you know there's not that specific line of you know demarcation this is you know the narrator speaking, you know what I mean.
0: Right. And the other thing I wanted to do is is I I tend to be a nice guy and I always care what other people not really think of me, but what do they think and what do they feel and and did I make somebody feel bad? And I never want to do that. And so Carl gets to be sort of that foil that uh, if I argue with him and I win, which I always win, um, assuming the other person has the same viewpoints as Carl, I don't want them to feel bad that, that you know, I think they're wrong or, you know, in in some cases, I think they're it's not a good argument that they're presenting. So for Carl, I mean, I, I happen to agree with Carl in this case. I think Pluto should still remain a planet, but at the same time recognize that it's just never going to happen just because a lot of people want it to be that way. And so uh, in, in this piece, I tried to help, Carl understand that it's not as bad as it could be in the hopes that the reader who thinks that pluto yes absolutely should be a planet they might go oh well that's okay then it's a dwarf planet it's not quite a planet but it's a dwarf planet and i could live with that so so in my own weird way i'm trying to help the reader come to terms with the fact that you know these these 400 astronomers have all decided for us what's a planet and what's not
2: yeah, and at the end of that piece, you do this funny thing with um, the pizza. Uh, they had the pizza on uh, what was it? Were, I'm rolling down to the end. A
0: fried page. egg on a pizza.
2: Yeah, fried egg. <laughs> fried egg that's on true.
0: Pizza. I I've eaten that. I I was in Holland at this Italian restaurant, and and they have pizza with a fried egg on it, and and they'll have like one giant salami and one giant ham and a couple of uh, pieces of green pepper on it. Uh, and so that was a real thing. And, and then that last line about the Italian gastronomical union came to me after writing about the International Astronomical Union. And that just sort of flowed out by accident. I don't even know where that came from.
2: All your – the pieces that I've read seem to end on this they, – they end on a funny beat. Um, just kind of like a, a quick punch. Do you – do you think that often comes on uh is just a part of your style, or do you focus on that in the revision?
0: I do that on purpose and and you know how people say that you have to spend a long time writing your lead. I spend more time writing the clothes because mm-hmm. i it has to be funny and and I don't know why it has to be funny and 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 i've I've thought about that. Why do I have to make this funny? I don't know that other human writers do that necessarily, but it's something I started and now I can't stop doing it. And I'll spend 20 minutes trying to write that closer. There have been times where I wrote the first draft and the closer doesn't come and I have to leave it. And when I come back for revisions, I better have it by then. Otherwise I start to get really nervous.
2: One of the closers that I laughed out loud about is uh, just flipping through my notes here. It's in the article, um, I misunderstood in several languages. You have these parenthetical comments that is really an expression of what's implied or what's not said in the conversation with this um, person you're ordering from. Um, and then the last beat in which in parentheses they take a shot at your accent and in really American <laughs> in general I just, I had to laugh. That just hit me. And it was like a callback, too, for what you had said earlier about the pronunciation of the word egg. And you do that as well in your other pieces from the very first one I read. Um, you you execute callbacks really well.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's something that I try to focus on once in a while is uh, making sure I've got callbacks uh, just because it is funnier. You know, I've seen stand-up comics do it, and and, uh, Dave Barry was a great one for callbacks. Uh, So I try to do that. Uh, And that one, that last line uh, where it says, uh, where the the other person in German says was, and what he's really saying is, y'all want an egg with that? Uh, That one just popped out and made me laugh. Like, I I just typed it out and saw what I had written and laughed at it, and I thought, well, if it makes me laugh, it has to stay. It's probably good. (laughs) It <laughs> doesn't mean it is, but I think so. And so uh, and so in this particular case, and this is a true story. This happened to me, like I was in Germany in 2005, and I would always ask for fritz mit mayonnaise. And they all said, what? Mayonnaise? What? Like three or four times. I thought, am I saying it wrong? So I finally asked a German friend. I said, how do you say mayonnaise? He said, my ex. I said, I've been saying that. He said, well, maybe you don't say it right. <laughs> so if, I had several conversations like this. It was so frustrating.
2: Um, in your your columns as well seem to take that range of, you know, you seem like you do a really good job of harnessing the everyday experiences um, of your life
0: that I, it's partly because I'm always looking for something to write about. And so it'll either be a current event like the Pluto column. Uh, it'll be something that, that recently happened to me. Like uh, the piece that I wrote about uh, Fred, the white goat of VV Indiana. Uh, I had just been down for their Fred, the goat festival because <clears throat> the, uh, the director of tourism there is a friend of mine. And other times, it's a matter of I can't think of anything and there's nothing happening in the news. I need to come up with something that happened to me once. So usually when you see those, unless it's something that just popped into my brain one day while I was in the car and I thought, hey, this would make a great column, usually when I, when I write one of those columns, it was a matter of I don't know what to write about this week. <laughs> That's when I sit down at 8 o'clock. And I don't have a topic.
2: You mentioned the Fred the White Goat piece and I found that piece interesting as well. It appears on the um Indiana blog and it it, it reminds me of the Fred. Fred itself, the way he's presented, he is a goat who ran away ultimately, he was a four edge goat and he ends up living in the woods on um and supposedly has a house. There's an abandoned house where he um He is. And I I thought that he he gets spotted frequently. Um, And I thought that you did a really good job of personifying Fred and and, um, bringing him to life in this story. And it's also part of a a larger story. There's another post where you go to different places in Indiana and you're working in um, other, I guess you would say tourist sites or other sites around there. Um, whether it's food or someone had a uh, like a like a art place, a sculpture,
0: mm-hmm.
2: a community sure. art center, um, and so I thought that that piece it remind a little bit the character of Fred sort of reminded me of Sebastian, little Sebastian on Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you ever watched Parks I and Rec. Haven't.
0: No, but, it's on oh, my, it's on my Netflix list.
2: Yeah, this character is a a mini pony, little Sebastian. And I don't know if little Sebastian is actually a real like pop culture thing or just something was exclusive to the, this town. But anyhow, it reminded me of that. So when you see it, you'll, you'll be like, Oh yeah. Um, but what I want to mention with the Fred, the white goat, it ties into um, your experience with working with the uh, state of Indiana on in March posted, that you were no longer going to work with them because of their passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And Mm -hmm. um, you write about how you didn't feel that you could, you know, write inviting people to a place where they might not be welcome. And so I wanted to ask you how you came to the decision process to sort of become, I guess, a writer as activist in a way, and stand up for something that you you believed in as the def- possible detriment to like losing um a paying gig,
0: yeah, well, and I had thought about that for a little while um you know what would I do if if Indiana passed the law and uh and so this was the law that would allow uh business owners to refuse to serve somebody uh based on their uh religious principles. Which, for the most part, what it would do, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to explain the law properly, but it would keep the government out of interfering with the business by making they couldn't make the business serve somebody. And so, what that meant, and what everybody interpreted that to mean, was that uh, a Christian business owner could refuse to serve a gay couple and the state wouldn't make them. And so I thought if they sign this into the law, I don't necessarily want to be a part of the Indiana state government anymore. And so this was a, uh, just a small time freelance writing gig. Uh, I got paid by them, but the better yet as a travel writer, I got comped certain things like tickets and, uh, and meals and hotel rooms and, so I was giving up uh you know an enjoyable job that took me all over the state. But I thought I can't ask people to come here when some of them aren't welcome. And so I emailed uh my supervisor at the, the Office of Tourism Development, and they were all very nice about it. They said, Yes, we understand that's that's fine, uh we support you, you know, at least emotionally we support you, uh and wish you the best. And so then I sent an email to my friends who were in the travel business to tell them what I was doing, and then I thought, i'm gonna post this as a as a blog post, and no one's gonna read it because no one ever does you know i'll I'll get ten or twelve readers whenever i make whenever I make announcements <laughs> no one pays attention and so I posted it and By 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd gotten 3,000 visits, and this is after posting it at 3.30. I got 3,000 visits in an hour and a half, and Channel 6, which is our local ABC affiliate, called me and said, hey, we want to do a story for the nightly news, and I said, well, I'm in a T-shirt, and I haven't shaved. Can you come up to my house? And they said, sure, and they've they've been there before because I I get to go on the news sometimes as a local social media expert for stories. And I figure they're going to come up and interview me, and we're going to talk for 10 minutes, and then that's going to be, you know, they're going to use a a five-second snippet of what I said in the whole story. And uh, so they come up and do the interview, and I turn on the 11 o'clock news that night. I'm the second story on the news for a good three minutes, and it's all about... This guy quit his job because of Riffra and I'm like oh crap. What did I do? And then the next day, uh the Advocate magazine had uh seven immediate backlashes against Indiana because of Riffra passage. And it was like the uh, Mark Benioff who's the CEO of Salesforce said uh no more employee travel to Indiana and the CEO of Angie's list, which is headquartered here in Indy they said we were going to do a big giant expansion, and now we're not. And then number seven on the list was me, and uh, <laughs> I was I was astounded at how much attention this got. I did interviews with the Toronto Star. I did interview an interview on a radio station out in California, and and I thought I just quit a job, and it's not even a big job. I you know if I made a hundred dollars in a month, that was a lot. <laughs> this is making national news. I was just so surprised at how quickly it took off.
2: And even on your the post, you can see where people are commenting and they're going back and forth. And it, 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 that, that, that's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. And it, it let me know who a couple of my friends, you know, true friends were. Cause I had people who, um, you know, were were condemning me religiously and, and uh, called me a, a center for supporting people. And I said, well, then I guess we're not friends anymore.
2: Well, you are actually going to be making some new friends because you're going to be moving to Florida, I hear.
0: Yes. we. Uh, and,
2: and when you move there next summer, or not next summer, next spring, you will be living in the Kerouac house, Jack Kerouac's house. Um, that he stayed in in or in the Orlando. So tell tell me about that. How did you hear about the Curex project?
0: Sure. Well, we're actually moving next month. Uh, we just had a uh, you know fingers crossed. We had an offer on the house that uh, we countered and they accepted, and uh, so we're going to be moving by September 15th, <clears throat> and I'll get to be down there and just kind of immerse myself in the Orlando literary community. Uh, and then starting in March, I will be the writer-in-residence at the Jack Kerouac House in college in the College Park area. <laughs> and normally what that is is somebody will come and visit uh, and stay there for three months, and they only have one person in the house at three months at a time, and they'll live there, and they get to focus on writing uh, and not be distracted by anything else. Since I'll be living in the area, I will come in during the day and treat it like an office and then go home at night. Now I'll still spend a lot of nights there because I mean you can't not spend the night in the Kerouac house but Yeah. But it's not gonna be a, a ninety day uh stay for me. And so and I've talked to them about this and they're fine with this. So my uh so I'd heard about this because I was in Orlando this past February and sitting in a in one of my favorite coffee shops in Orlando called uh downtown Credo and it's this uh pay what you think coffee shop. And I happened to check Facebook, and Barb Shoup, who is the director of the Writer Center of Indiana, she wrote a book called Searching for Jack Kerouac or Looking for Jack Kerouac, which is a young adult novel. And she posted on Facebook that she was going to be in Orlando doing a reading at the Kerouac House tomorrow. You know, the, the day, the day after I was sitting there. And there's a Kerouac House. There's a Kerouac House here. And I looked it up, and I saw that I was sitting just four blocks away from the Jack Kerouac house. Wow! And so I I thought, what is this? And they had a website, and I looked it up and read about it, and I emailed them and said, hey, can I come in for a visit? You know, thinking this is just like a a semi-public house. And they said, no, no, it's a residence. It's a private residence for our writer-in-residence. You can't just go traipsing through the house. And I thought, well, it's a writer-in-residence program. And I looked that up on the website, and I see that, you know that they have these different writers come in, and so uh, I waited a few weeks and then I applied. And then after we made the decision to move and we were going to put our house on the market, they emailed me and said, uh, "Hey, you're in." <laughs> like I was really yeah. surprised when they picked me, but uh, but then uh, you know I've I've learned by talking to some of the people associated with it that Orlando has this really vibrant literary community. I'm really excited to be a part of.
2: Mm. And to date, they've had over 51. Uh, they've had 51 writers so far, be right, from all over the world, um, and uh, spend time at the Curec House working on their project. So, what did you submit? And it says I, I was looking at the guidelines. I think it seems to be open to all t- kinds of writers. They've had poets, et cetera, et cetera. What were you applying for?
0: Um, I submitted the first chapter of a humor novel that I've been working on uh, just kind of off and on for the last almost two years, and I thought this would be a great time to uh, to have to sit down and do it. The novel is one of those things that I squeeze in when I've got free time, which is not that often, uh, and so I thought this would be a great way to work on that.
2: I just interviewed um, Neil Smith. He's a, a Canadian author. He's the author of a young adult novel called Boo, and also a short story, short um, short stories series. No, a book of short stories <laughs> okay. called Van um, Crunch. And he he wrote about writing a novel when he didn't know how to write a novel. He had to teach himself how, and you know he ended up writing a plotless novel at first and then figured out how to plot and actually execute it, you know, what I think is a pretty amazing plot. What do you have any um going into this novel writing process? Um have you done one before? Do you have anything specifically that you might be not necessarily anxious about or like, oh, how am I gonna do this? You know what I mean?
0: Um I I wrote a novel once. It wasn't very good. Uh if I were to try to revisit it I'd have to cut the second half completely and just start it over. Um, so I, I understand the basics of novel writing process, but more from reading novels rather than reading about writing novels. I've, you know, I've not taken a novel writing class or anything like that. And I think that's the thing that makes me the most anxious, is I don't know if I'm doing it right. But then, I've, you know, all my other writing friends just say, well, there is no right. There's just, you just do it. And if it's a good story, it'll work. And if it isn't, it won't. So I also worry that I'm biting off more than I can chew with this. The uh, The premise of the story is what if Mackinac Island, which is up in Michigan, right off of the, the fingertips, what if it was forced to secede from the country and become its own nation? And... uh And so as I think about it, there's so many different storylines that could come off of this. And I don't know if I've tackled too much. And so I have to make sure that I don't try to incorporate every possible thing that could go on. You know, then we're looking at 800 storylines within this one little book.
2: How did you find your, how did you hit your humor voice? How did you find your stride? Like, when did you know,, you know I've
0: got it. this is who I am. this is my voice. uh, it was the first it was one of the first essays I wrote uh this is back before I started becoming a humor columnist, one of the first essays I wrote, and it was kind of funny, and I showed it to my wife, and she laughed and uh and I thought, oh, I could do that you know and it was it was an enjoyable feeling to hear her laugh at something I read. And, uh, and so I, I thought, well, I want to do that some more. And so I, I tried to write some more to get her, you know, again, to get her to laugh. And so when I met Al, the, uh, the newspaper publisher, uh, I thought maybe this is a way to get more people to do it. And so, uh, he, he really did read my stuff and it wasn't just a matter of, you know, was I really a Democrat? It was, he read it and he liked it. And then he asked me, but he really did ask me if I was a Democrat and then uh but once I started hearing from other people that they enjoyed my column um, that that made me want to do it and then this is kind of a funny story. I was just thinking about this guy the other day. there was a guy who had published and this is nineteen ninety five ninety six back when you know it took a lot of effort to have a web page, let alone an entire website. This guy had a web page of funny Internet humor writers, and I made the list. And then two months later, I went back and checked it, and I wasn't on the list anymore. And I wrote the guy and said, what happened? Why aren't I on the list? And he said, you're just not that funny. I got so mad, I thought, screw you, I'm going to show you. And and so I really started focusing on humor and learning techniques and reading about how do you write humor and how do you write comedy and, and you know, figuring out the difference between stand-up comedy versus sitcom writing versus humor essay type writing and uh, and trying to incorporate the different elements and, you know, really studied it and wanted to be worthy of being back on this guy's list, but if he had asked if I wanted to be on it, I'd tell him no because you know I'm too good for your list now. But I I have no idea who that guy is or whatever happened to him, but it it ended up making me study and focus on how to do this, and how to how to use things like callbacks or um, you know different writing techniques to to get the humor points across.
2: What is uh. Is, is there any book that you read that sticks out in your memory that was most helpful to you uh
0: the one that actually sticks out the most are any of the dave berry books to be honest okay. um because i could i could read about the techniques but i'm not you know if somebody explains to me a process uh, i'm not that great at, at uh understanding yep. it but if somebody tells me a story about it or shows me an example of that process and action, then I get it immediately. So I'd read these humor books and they would help, but then I would read Dave Barry and I'd see what they were talking about. And then I was like, Oh, I could, I could do that or I can steal that idea. And so that any, any of the Dave Barry stuff, especially his work from the, uh, from the mid eighties, late or early nineties, that was his, that was the stuff that influenced me the
2: most. And my final question for you is, is, what do you think you do in your writing that is a superpower? Uh,
0: I, I do think the ability to make people laugh. Um, I would say that's part of it. I would say dialogue is another part of it. How do I save the world with that? Now I'll write. Uh, I'll write uh, corny PSAs that encourage peace but with
1: humor. Thanks for rocking with me on another episode of Behind the Pros. Coming up, I have an exclusive interview with Dinty Moore. We talk about his memoir, his award-winning memoir, Between Panic and Desire. And that's a precursor to the special Dinty Moore episode that I have from the Creative Nonfiction Writers Conference earlier this year in May. I still got that for you. Plus, I have a compilation episode from that conference. I have interviews with Sharice Tracy, who has just been blowing up. She's in the New York Times. She's in the L.A. Times. She's in Essence. She's in Ebony. And so I talked to her last week. And I also have a special live recorded podcast with some of my students. We talked to Jessica Contrera, who is a writer at the Washington Post. And they got to ask her some questions. So that was really cool. Make sure that you stick around. Stay tuned. Stay logged in, stay logged on, do all that good stuff. But more importantly than all of that, listen, learn and write.